If you have your Bible, I hope you do, uh, turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And today we're going to look at verses 38 through 40. A short section, a lot shorter than our uh, typical sections of Scripture. But I think it's important for us to take some time and pause and really look at uh, this illustration and story that we have here in front of us. So John 18, 38 through 40. I'm going to be preaching from the ESV. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to grab one. We have some in the back. Uh, it's our gift to you. We would love for you to have that. Uh, but we want to make sure that everyone has uh, God's Word in front of them so they can look and make sure that what I'm saying is according to God's Word and not just my thought. So John chapter 18, verses 38 through 40. I'm going to read this for us, and then I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for his help. Verse 38b says this. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you just praise and glory for who you are, uh, for what you have given to us even in this moment, that uh, there is not another moment like this in our lives where we will be in this exact place with this exact people singing these exact songs in the exact same way. And so we expect something today as we sit now under the authority of your word. Uh, may this not be a lecture. May it not come across as uh, a to-do list. But may we see the glorious work of Christ on our behalf. So Lord, I pray that you would work in the lives of each and every individual here for their good and your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we have in front of us one of the greatest illustrations of the Christian doctrine of substitution in all of Scripture. Uh, J.C. Riles calls this scene a lively illustration of substitution. He goes on to say, happy is the man who understands this doctrine and has laid hold on it by faith for the salvation of his own soul. So what is the doctrine of substitution? Or uh, better put, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. I wanna give you a simple definition so we're all on the same page. You can write this down if you're taking notes. But substitutionary atonement is this. Christ's death in our place instead of us. Christ's death 
in our place instead of us. Before we look at our text, it's important to have a greater understanding of substitutionary atonement from the whole of Scripture. This would be biblical theology. So ever since the first act of rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose their own desires, they chose sin over the commands of God, humanity has had a massive problem. See, the gospel starts with God. We have a God who is holy, who is perfect, who is almighty, who is without flaw. He is glorious. And due to his perfect glory, he cannot tolerate the smallest of sins. See, one single sin is a grotesque offense against holy creator God. Uh, Furthermore, God is perfectly just. Uh, Therefore, he must judge sin accordingly. Uh, We'll just take a quick illustration for our day and time. There was a judge in our area who continually let uh, the worst offenders, even the smallest offenders, go free without any form of justice. We would say that that judge was not just. There's consequences for sin. There's consequences for our actions. And so our judges in our day would be found unjust and unworthy to be a judge if they did not punish sin accordingly. Unlike our judges, God's judgment is not just a cause and effect, but it is his holy wrath against sin. Now, the anger that God has towards sin is holy. It's beautiful, and it's right because sin is so terrible that it deserves punishment. So when we became a part of uh, humanity's nature and adopted this sin nature that all humanity bears because of our uh, father and mother, Adam and Eve, the first parents of this world, we then also take on this nature that then causes a great divide between the perfect God and sinful humanity. See, sin causes division. Uh, Maybe you've had a relationship in your life, and uh, you know that if there's some type of uh, sin that has uh, taken place, maybe an offense from one party to the other, there's a divide. Uh, There's naturally something that happens between the two parties that are involved. You're, You're angry, you're upset, you're hurt. And so because of that, you act in some type of way. But God loves his people. So when humanity sinned in that garden, God developed a sacrificial system where there could be restoration of the relationship so that man and God could commune as originally planned. The system was designed like this. 
When humanity sinned, they would offer a sacrifice as a substitute for their transgressions. Uh, We see this system developed by God. He actually acts first to show this right after Adam and Eve sin. If you recall, uh, they take of the fruit. Uh, They then realize um, we are, uh, we've done wrong. They also, Scripture tells us, realize that now they are essentially naked and ashamed. So they have guilt heaped upon them because of their transgression. And what do they do? They go and they hide. We want to run from God. We know we have done wrong, so now we will run. And what does God do? He calls them out. He calls for them. Now God knows exactly where they are. Where are you? What have you done? And Adam says, well, we, we, we ran, we hid because we're naked. That's really a, a way to frame the, the shame that they now felt. And listen to what God does. Genesis three twenty one. We read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where did he get those skins? A sacrifice. A sacrifice. A.W. Pink comments here, It was the first gospel sermon preached by God himself. Not in words, but in symbol and action. It was a setting forth of the way by which a sinful creature could return unto and approach his holy creator. It was a blessed illustration of substitution. The innocent dying in the stead of the guilty. God continues this system in the Old Testament with Israel after he has set this in place. See, when someone would sin, they would then bring an animal to the priest, the representative of of the people of uh, their day. The, The priest would examine this sacrifice to ensure that it had no blemish and that there was no defect. The person would then lay their hand on the animal, uh, kind of in a symbolic way, as if their sin was then uh, given over to this animal, signifying that the animal functioned as a substitute for the person. Their sin was somewhat, in a symbolic way, transferred to the animal. And then that animal would be slaughtered. It would be a bloody mess. It would not be some beautiful scene. There would be blood then sprinkled on the altar. And the violent death of the animal represents the penalty that humanity deserves. They would see this. They would know this. The animal's death acted as a substitute for the person. And the animal took the penalty that the worshiper, uh, that person that brought that animal, then deserved. But we know that Scripture tells us that 
animal sacrifices do not and cannot fully and finally atone for sin. Hebrews 10.4 reminds us of this. The writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These Old Testament sacrifices were a foreshadow. They were a telling of what was to come by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah tells of this great substitute, Jesus himself, in Isaiah 53, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Turn there with me, because I want to just take a quick inventory of what the prophet says. Isaiah 53 prophet writes, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, verse 2, this is Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Now, once again, this is Jesus that the prophet is speaking of. Verse 3, he was despised, rejected by men. I want you to remember that. Remember that as we look at the scene that we will see unfold in John chapter 18. The prophet continues to write, he says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So, I mean, he's he's painting this picture of Jesus as the man of sorrows, the one who is despised, the one who is rejected. And then in verse 4, he goes on, he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Do, Do you see the picture that's being painted here? There's one that has taken and absorbed the punishment, the wrath, the wounds that we deserve. He goes on in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are rebels. (laughs) We have clearly rejected God. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Think of the illustration that we just had of the Old Testament priest laying down this lamb. 
And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This passage tells us that it was God himself who put Christ forward. That it was his desire so that his will would be fulfilled. What is this? I mean, this is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, foretold by the prophet Isaiah. This is a great picture of the righteous one, the perfect one, who gives himself for the rebel. In our text today, we see a wonderful illustration of this. You know, all four gospel writers include this in their account, which if you know anything about the gospels, that's not always the case. But it's important that we take note here. And what I want to do is we look at this scene. So I want us to see two main pictures. Two simple points. One, we see a guiltless Savior. And two, we see a guilty sinner. A guiltless Savior and a guilty sinner. So look at the text with me. And after he, this is Pilate, had said this, What did he say? Well, we looked at this last week. He had just said, what is truth? Remember, he's questioning Jesus. Jesus has pointed to himself as the truth, as the one who tells no lie, who has come to draw attention to the truth of God himself. And Pilate rejects this. What is truth, he asks So then he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I mean, this this statement is so important. I find no guilt in him. Let us recall to memory that Jesus has been through um, just a horrible scene of interrogation. Uh, The scriptures tell us that there's about six different uh, scenes of uh, interrogation, three by the Jews, three by the Romans. Uh, Pilate had him first. He sends him to Herod. Then Herod sends him back to Pilate. 
I mean, Jesus is weak. He's hungry. He's been beaten. His, he's been mistreated. He's been abandoned. But still, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Luke provides us with some more details in chapter 23 of his gospel account. We read, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, "Uh, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. He says, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So the verdict is in. Jesus is not guilty. And so Pilate, being the chump that he is, uh, says, well, I'll just beat him up a little bit, and then we'll, we'll let him go. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Pilate can find no guilt in him. This is important for us because what this shows us is that even in the court of law in Jesus' day, which was corrupt and full of wicked men, could not find any fault in our Savior. Not guilty. I mean, this is a pagan leader. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew. I mean, he he has nothing to do with anything that would say we should let Jesus go. But he himself finds our Savior not guilty. Think back to what we reviewed earlier. Spotless sacrifice. Without blemish. Guiltless free from sin. Friends, there was no sin in Christ's nature. There was no sin on Christ's lips. There was no iniquity in his life. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Peter reminds us in his epistle in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, this is the perfect God-man being put forth for sinful humanity. Church, see your Savior on display. He is perfect. There's no guilt in him at all. In other words, he is righteous, perfect. Pilate here is afraid of losing his authority. 
We looked at that a little bit last week, and he was under a lot of uh, threat uh, to lose his position because of some just uh, ignorant things that he had done in his past. And the Jews had a a lot of power to, to be able to say, you know what, we don't want him around anymore. So Pilate has kind of concocted a scheme, a plan to kind of hopefully get himself off the hook here and decides to please the Jews, hoping that they will make the decision to release Jesus themselves. So he says in verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He probably said this as kind of a jest, tongue-in-cheek type of remark to Jesus. Not much is known about this custom that Pilate speaks of here, other than it was intended to show in some type of way the relation to the Passover as we remember that God overlooked, he Harden God's people, those who had the blood of the lamb over the door. We don't know if Rome incorporated this to get the, uh, the fanhood of the people or if it was the Jews themselves. Nevertheless, this is what Pilate appeals to. He says, you have that custom, so how about I release to you Jesus I mean, Pilate thinks, surely they will choose Jesus Christ. But notice here the crowd's anger and hostility towards Jesus. I mean, they're so caught up in their emotions that it leads them to choose the worst of the worst. Let's look next at the picture of the guilty sinner. They cried out again in verse 40, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. And then John tells us that Barabbas was a robber. I want you to just notice with me for a moment the hard-heartedness of the heart of the people. I mean, how just angry they are. I mean, this shows us a great picture of the, the bitterness of mankind towards Jesus Christ, the rejection, the hatred. John says that Barabbas was a robber. Uh, this word robber doesn't really do his uh, infractions justice. Uh, Matthew tells us that he was notorious. Uh, Mark says he was a murderer. Uh, Luke says he was an insurrectionist. Um, kids and adults alike, you, I want you to just think with me for a moment of, of maybe your, your favorite story of good versus evil, where there's some type of bad guy that comes into play. Worst villain you may have ever imagined. And we'll say Barabbas is worse than him. He's the worst of the worst. He was a terrorist of his day, kind of like a a, a modern day Osama bin Laden. He was an insurrectionist. He was a, a great 
threat to the people, to the government. But the crowd chooses him to be released over Jesus Christ. This man who was a threat to their society. This man who was a threat to their well-being, their way of life, their safety. A man who had caused great harm. They say, we want the rebel. Release the rebel Barabbas. Crucify Jesus Christ. Some points of application that we must take note of here. One, we are all Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. We're all guilty as charged, friends. This picture is to show us that reality. See, Romans 3.23 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember what I said earlier, that even the smallest sin is, as R.C. Sproul says, cosmic treason. We have sinned against a holy creator who is perfect, without blemish, who is just to punish all sin. And because we are all sinners, then in Romans 6.23, we read that the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me. You hear nothing else that I say today than hear this. Each and every one of us deserve death. All of us. We deserve death. The great ba Baptist preacher John Gill uh, says, quote, Barabbas was an emblem of God's elect in a state of nature, but released and set free when Christ was condemned. Do you get that, friends? Do you see how much that you and I deserve to die. Do you understand the great exchange? That it's not that, oh my goodness, Barabbas, how could they ever let him go? It's, no, how in the world could God ever let us go? How could he ever take someone so vile as me and say not guilty and put the perfect lamb Fourth, the righteous for the rebel. Barabbas shows our depravity. Barabbas shows our great sin against a holy God. I know maybe some of you are thinking, well, I haven't done that much bad. You know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I, I don't have a wild and reckless testimony. Let me remind you. 
that it's not the man that judges our sin for eternity's sake. It is God himself. God is the ultimate judge. And because of his perfection, because of his holiness, the littlest white lie is enough to ultimately and finally condemn us to everlasting torment. Eternal punishment, separated from the love of God and only then receiving the wrath of God. See, hell is not the absence of God. Many people would like that. Atheists would love that. Those that hate God would love to go to a place where they don't have to deal with God. See, a lot of times the evangelical church has gotten this wrong. We've painted a picture of hell as a place where where God is absent. But scripture tells us something else. What's absent is his love, his mercy, his grace. Hell is not a place where uh, the demons and Satan just run amok and they get to do whatever they want. And everyone who's in rebellion to God just does what they want. It is a place where the wrath of God is continually poured out. The wrath that has been stored up. The wrath that has been given to Christ now for his people is released to those that are not his for eternity. Friends, we are the rebels. Christ is the righteous. And if you don't know this glorious truth and you have not understood the glorious good news of what it really means to be in Christ, See, the gospel is good news. The gospel is not just a a set of rules or a a set of uh, good information. No, it is good news that those that were objects of wrath can now be objects of affection. Sin must be punished, though. Neither you trust in the substitute or you face the punishment on your own. John Stott once said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. See, the hope of the gospel is that there is a sacrifice There is someone who has put himself forward. So Christians, what we get to do now, those that have placed their faith in Christ, who have trusted in his atonement on our behalf, we live with assurance that Christ's payment has paid it all. Turn back with me to Hebrews 10. 
Hebrews chapter 10. Read a portion of this earlier, but I want to just jump down here to verses 12 through 18. And I, I want you to see this glorious news of the gospel. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, it's one and done. He finished it, friends. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Stop right there. You know who's being sanctified? Christians. We are being sanctified into the image of Christ. We are being made new. We have not reached perfection. I know at least I haven't. And you haven't either. We're being sanctified, made new. And then in verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us and for us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I, listen to this, listen to this. This is the promise for believers, friends. Christian, this is a promise for you. This is assurance of salvation. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Amen, somebody. Have you grasped the depravity of sin and the glories of salvation? Your sins, which are many, my sins, which are many, are forgiven. He sees them no more. This is called double imputation. It's a big word. I'm not going to spend a long time talking about it, but here's what happens. Christ takes our sin and it's forgiven. Then we get his righteousness. Two things happen on that cross. We'll talk more about this in the days to come, Lord willing, as we look more at the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But here I want you to just see the substitute. He gave himself. Christian, Christ took your place. He became a single sacrifice for your sin. Charles Spurgeon once preached this. He says, we believe in the real, literal substitution of Christ in the place of all whom he had covenanted to save. And as many as believe in him may assuredly know that their sins were transferred from them and laid up on him, end quote. I want you to think back to the picture of that sinner putting their hand on that lamb. The Bible talks about us being in Christ, essentially saying that our sins were placed up on him in the same way. 
I mean, what confidence, friends. What assurance. What motivation to live for Jesus. What motivation to put aside all the things of this world. Who cares what man has to say? Who cares the accolades that we may achieve in this world? It is Christ and Christ alone whom we should live for. When John Newton was on his deathbed, many of you know the story of John Newton. He was a slave trader and lived on uh, slave trips or, or ships and took many trips of, of exchanging uh, human for money. I mean, he's a wicked, deplorable man. He wrote the great hymn that's probably the most famous hymn in all of the world of amazing grace. And as he was dying on his deathbed, he says this, and I can relate so well. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we remember that today. May that motivate us to live for him. As the great hymn, Man of Sorrows says, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the God, the Son of God who came, Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I'll give you a moment to pause and reflect on that reality. Maybe some of you need to talk to the Lord and confess your sin to him. Ask for forgiveness that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Maybe you've never placed your faith in the great substitute. Maybe you've never seen the rebel in yourself. Let me assure you today that there is hope and there is forgiveness in Christ. May today be the day of salvation for you. Don't leave here today without talking to the Lord. For those that maybe are in here this morning and maybe you've struggled with just the assurance of salvation because of mistakes that you've made, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Oh, great, glorious God. We are so thankful that you have not dealt with us as we deserve. But you, oh God, have placed our sin, the wrath that was due upon the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you so much that because of Christ, we can live. That because of Christ, we can live untethered to this world. That although hardships and trials come our way, we trust in the Redeemer. We trust in the God who has made a way to reconcile us to himself through Jesus alone. So God, I pray that that would not be lost on anyone today. I pray that hearts would be penetrated, that minds would be changed, renewed, that there would be some that come to the knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ, today. And that those that may have been living in a way that continues to show rebellion to God would turn today. They would flee, flee rebellion and pursue righteousness for their good and your glory. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.